Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, my guest is Jacob Siegel, senior editor at Tablet Magazine, who just wrote an incredible piece on disinformation. This is episode 43. We're going to spend a lot of time this episode talking about the absolutely must-read comprehensive article, A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century, a 13-part article published by Siegel in Tablet Magazine recently. The hoax of the century he is describing is disinformation and the way the anti-disinformation industry has been constructed to control the information that you and I get to consume. But we begin with Siegel's background in journalism and serving our country. Jacob, thanks so much for doing this. I, I have to say, I, um, I've i heard you, I think I listened to you on the Fifth Column podcast once, maybe, uh, which I enjoyed, um, but I, I, I only know of your writing. I haven't actually, we've never talked. Um, but I have to say, I, I read A Guide to Understanding the Hoax of the Century in, in Tablet uh, recently, um, and it's a massive, just impressive work of journalism, and it really is the impetus for this. So, so, so congrats on doing that. That, that was so impressive and so interesting. Um, I want to get into that. We'll spend the bulk of our time there, but before we do, let's just start a little bit with your background. Um, I was trying to look into it a little bit and see, you know, your career path. And I guess I'll ask you about it. I saw you know, some of the, the work you did like at the daily beast a few years ago, which even back then, this was like maybe five or six years ago, I want to say was kind of deep in internet culture. And I will say maybe tracking some of the, let's say internet internet extremism that uh, was interesting how much that has shifted now uh, based on the work that you've just done with Tablet. So give me a little bit on kind of your career and, and what brought you to uh, to Tablet now. Yeah, I was covering both internet extremism and national security at the Daily Beast. And so the big evolution is that those two things merged in, uh, in my later work. But I took my job at the Daily Beast right after I got back from Afghanistan and 2012, I got back. I think I took the job in early 2013. So it was shortly after I got back from Afghanistan, my brother was working at the Daily Beast. He told me they're looking for a veteran, uh, sort of veterans issues editor kind of deal. They had a, a veterans vertical. And so I got hired to do that. And it was my first real job in journalism. I'd been writing fiction prior to that. So I'd written... Oh, wow a story for a, an anthology of short fiction called Fire and Forget, along with some other veteran writers like Phil Clyde, Matt Gallagher, Royce Granton. So I'd edited and written that and was really focused on fiction writing, which is a tough way to pay the bills. Um, so I got into journalism through this uh, kind of veterans affairs, veterans editor role, and then quickly realized, you know, I didn't just want to be doing these sort of um, vet veterans issue pieces, though I was interested in that, and I did some good work on VA hospitals and stuff like that. So then I sort of spun off into um, national security reporting, and in 2014, I had been in Iraq as a soldier in 2006, 2007, and in 2014, I got the Daily Beast to send me back to Iraq as a reporter. Oh, wow. So, yeah, I was doing that, and at the same time, as you mentioned, really, uh, I just couldn't help but notice when I got back from Afghanistan that something strange was growing online. And I wasn't, um, you know, I spent like, I like watching YouTube videos like anybody else and checked out Reddit and 
did that sort of thing, but I wasn't a very online person by any stretch. And I didn't, not only did I not spend time on 4chan when I tried to, to sort of study 4chan a bit, uh, it's impenetrable if you're not really steeped in that. So I didn't have that. I didn't have that. I wasn't a native speaker, as you might say, but I noticed that there were interesting and strange things growing in these corners of the internet. And I started to pay closer and closer attention to those. And, you know, I wrote one of the first actually sort of significant pieces about the intellectual arc of the alt-right, you might say. So not just a piece about um, scary Nazis online, but a piece about what are these ideas? What's the kind of animating force behind this? And it was right after uh, Dylan Roof, um, you know, the, the shooting at the killing at the church. And so that's that certainly caught my interest in understanding what had formed this guy. And it seemed to have certain natural connections to what I was looking at in the counterterrorism world. And it was connected both in terms of, say, pathways of radicalization, that kind of um, that kind of thing. And then it was also connected in terms of the response to it. So in both cases, with counterterrorism and with the Dylan Roof shooting, you saw these attempts to kind of crack down on the internet in their wake and to to understand the connections between online discourse and um, physical violence in the real world. And that was all at the Daily Beast and, yeah, grew from there. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I'm, I'm curious, what was it like? you know, being a, a soldier in, you said it was it Afghanistan or Iraq that you were, you were in? I was in both, but I went, okay. uh, I went you were back, back to Iraq as a reporter. Yeah. What was that experience like, particularly, you know, kind of having the, the, the prior experience that you had? Well, I didn't talk to anybody about that prior experience when I went back. So it was interesting having a secret to keep from the people who I had to trust while I was there, who right. I liked and did trust my translator and my fixer. I actually did tell them um, on my last day in Iraq, we were sitting in the hotel room smoking cigarettes. Uh, me and the one guy were smoking cigarettes. My uh, fixer was um, it was during Ramadan, so he wouldn't smoke. But we were just talking, and I mentioned it to him. And um, they said, yeah, don't tell anybody else. <laughs> you know, we appreciate that yeah. you told us, but don't mention that to anyone else. Um, it was a not an experience that I could reflect on until I got back from Iraq, because while I was there, it was at the height of, you know, ISIS closing in on Baghdad. And I I knew even at the time that the claims about ISIS actually threatening Baghdad were always really overstated and exaggerated. There was never really any threat of ISIS taking over Baghdad. Iran wouldn't have allowed that to happen. They didn't have the forces to do that, but they could certainly put the city, um, you know, under a kind of terrorist siege with these repeated attacks. So I was running and gunning, trying to chase after stories while I was there. And it was, I had this sense of my past kind of lurking behind that, but um, I didn't really get the chance to make sense of all of it until I got back from that reporting trip and thought about the, the kind of bigger picture. What led Siegel to turn his time and energy to writing about disinformation and the hoax of the century. I, I wonder also if your unique background here 
played a role in, in maybe being a little bit more clear eyed about some of this, because I have to say, you know, I, as someone who's written for, for, for years, really, I mean, I think certainly the Hunter Biden laptop, which you get at in your, in your piece was, was a big inflection point for me, but, but trying to understand this and, and so often people who criticize the media get, uh, that's, you know, the for lack of a better term, mainstream media, corporate media get criticized as being, you know, conservative or, you know, right-wing or Republican, um, and it's just so such a bizarre reshuffling and realignment that seems to be happening now. Um, and it was, um, and so, yeah, maybe your unique background, it helps, helps sort of seeing it that way. Um, because I wonder what, what made you so interested in this topic, the, what you, you know, clearly put a tremendous amount of time into this and, and what was it about this in particular that you said, this needs to go deep. This is not a thousand word column or, or, you know, reported article. This is, this is going, going all in on it. Yeah, I would say, you know, it started with the instinct, uh, with a sort of instinctual feeling about it. And then it grew into the conceptual understanding of why it needed to go so deep. The instinct was every time I tried to write about it in a more limited or narrow way, I felt like I was missing the story. I couldn't yeah. get it right. And I wanted to do that. I should say my intention was not to write a 13,000 plus word piece in a kind of in the form of a, you know, a, you know, with cha 13 chapters and a right. prologue. It wasn't to write a mini book like that or a, a pamphlet. You know, it was, it was to write a 2000 word or 2,500 word piece that caught right to the essence. And I found that I couldn't do it. It was impossible. And I realized that the reason why I couldn't do it was because this really is a kind of reality shaping phenomenon. And so in trying to describe it, if you isolate any particular part of it, you miss the scope of it, you miss its true intention, you miss the way in which it, it aims not at any particular end, but at a much broader uh, reformatting of the basis of social reality, political reality. And so I just figure out another way to do it. As far as how my background played into seeing it that way, um, you know, I'm a somewhat skeptical person by nature, but I'm not a, I'm not a radical by any means. You know, it's not my, my first instinct is not to, um, look for the sort of nefarious, um, and abusive uses of power, particularly in the United States. So it didn't start with any a political instinct that made me think uh, agencies and the upper levels of government are conspiring to um, seize power from right. American citizens and, and overthrow the constitutional basis of the country. That's not where I'm coming from. But it did start with an understanding that the enormous lies that I had seen laundered into discourse through the war on terror namely the idea that there was progress being made in Afghanistan, that we were training the Afghan national security forces and this would allow us to leave. And I had just seen, you know, Afghanistan was a sort of more disillusioning deployment for me than Iraq, even though it was a much easier deployment in terms of, you know, what was actually happening in my immediate surroundings. And it was more disillusioning because in Iraq, there was so much violence and chaos. It was... I sort of, I lost track of the bigger picture, perhaps, or that seemed to suggest its own kind of ultimate logic to the war. In Afghanistan, it was just very clear 
that not only were we lying about the progress we were making, but we were lying about it to no apparent end. You know, there was no vital strategic goal at stake. We weren't pretending like we were pursuing a vital strategic goal. We weren't pursuing victory of any, you know, it was a kind of bureaucratic inertia had taken over. The war existed to justify itself. It was lucrative for a small coterie of people and, and, um, and, and for a larger sort of bureaucratic infrastructure that had, that had taken place there. And then there was this larger narrative machinery around it. And so that was certainly disillusioning. And I had seen the way in which the bureaucracy of the war on terror had failed at every critical juncture to achieve its own stated ends, had failed to to do the thing it was created to do. And yet its budgets were never in question. Right. You know, the worst thing that might happen to an agency is it got renamed. So you had a counter IED agency one day and okay, its budget line got taken away. But the next day, now you had a joint IED defeat agency or something <laughs> like that. And so there was this constant shuffling of the, the deck. And so that certainly contributed to uh, to my understanding of this. That's yeah, the juxtaposition of of the war on terror and and kind of the disinformation campaign complex that started um, something that comes up several times in your piece. And I should say, I am going to give an intro at the beginning of this, so people already understood it. But the hoax of the century, as you've laid out, is this whole disinformation claim that has been been used in in all sorts of different ways that you track. Um, great line from from the intro saying disinformation is both the name of the crime and the means of covering it up a weapon that doubles as a disguise, uh, which is just so great. Um, and it's just it just flies in the face of what so many people have come to understand about what disinformation is and how it plays a role. Um, I was going to do this chronological or, or in the order of the piece, but I think it, it makes most sense right now going into chapter six, um, which which is about 9-11. And, and uh, you know, it, it really does kind of put this in stark display here. Um, you know, you write today to keep Americans safe, it's no longer enough to invade the Middle East and bring its people democracy, according to the Biden White House and the army of disinformation experts. The threat is now coming from within. Um, and the next chapter is about January 6th, which I, I think we can spend some more time on. But what, what what is it that you think allowed people that that share your point of view on the failures of the you know, the wars that we we waged in the in the Middle East, particularly people, I would say, on the left, people that are in the, the corporate media that have come to understand that now and, and their own culpability in pushing that, uh, and yet have seemed to embrace without much thought this new effort. The new effort empowers them. And so to go against it would require denying self-interest. And that's not natural for people. So yeah. I don't think it's that they're particularly wicked. I think that there's a, a natural tendency in all people to see the things that serve our self-interest as good and the things that jeopardize our interests as bad. And the people sort of broadly speaking, say on the progressive and, and liberal left, understand themselves to be benefiting from this counter disinformation structure in the sense that they are more or less aligned in their in their broadest interests of course there are particular areas of disagreement but they are aligned in the broadest sense of their class interests and their economic interests with the federal agencies of the united states government with the the large bureaucracies 
and with the intelligence agencies who are themselves a kind of large and powerful bureaucracy uh, aligned with the Democratic Party. And so they, they might have been critics of uh, the war on terror, but they didn't understand the war on terror directly in relation to their own self-interest. Few people did, um, you know, and I'm from that class, broadly speaking. Right. The reason I, I had a personal stake in the war on terror because I was a participant in it, but I think most people who were critics of it probably didn't have any kind of personal stake. And so you could criticize that in, in a way that might have seemed passionate um, and, and perhaps was passionate, but was also detached from one's own immediate interests. Whereas counter disinformation at its core is about buttressing the power of elite technocratic institutions um, across the board, both in the security sector, in the health sector, in the news media. So, you know, when somebody criticizes the New York Times um, or, or, or points out that there are errors in the New York Times coverage of um, vaccine mandates, etc., it's now within the arsenal of institutions like the New York Times to say this is disinformation. So it's an inc an incredibly powerful tool for stigmatizing and delegitimizing one's enemies. And people are naturally inclined to like incredibly powerful tools for stigmatizing their enemies. So I think there's a lot of, you know, I think, um, I think there's a lot of just class interest involved here, that this is a tool that serves one class and is a very effective weapon against the enemies of that class. And you can look for reasons beyond that, but you don't necessarily have to look for reasons beyond that because that's probably sufficient on its own. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's maybe a little cynical, but but probably right. Uh, but it got you know it's in part nine or chapter nine you write about COVID, uh, and in some ways it's kind of the the apex of, of this. Although it also to me so in in one in one area, uh, early twenty twenty March April May, I get that there was an inclination to trust the experts, the scientific experts, um, to want to make sure that people are not going against things that could really harm communities, um, that there was a real instinct there. And so in some ways, I understand how it initially started. But what I really don't get, uh, because they went all in on it. I mean, you, you mentioned the, the disinformation dozen that the Biden administration put out, President Biden saying things like Facebook is killing people. And they're not being universal outrage on the part of the corporate media in in the way that this was being weaponized uh, against these people. And for me, uh, trying to understand how once the new science came to light, that there wasn't this big reckoning at saying that here was the real, like the actual single situation to blow up the whole disinformation narrative. Well, we pushed this it turned out to actually be information, not disinformation. And so now we must question all of our pushes of disinformation. That never happened. And that still hasn't happened. And I wonder why you think that might be. Yeah, I, look, I don't think this is cynical, I should say. I mean, I understand what cynicism is. And I think that what I'm engaging in is more of a detached analysis of yeah. the way these, these things actually work. And I point that out only because um, the, the important part of that is that it's not about individual character or motivation for me. It's not that I think that the 
majority of people involved in these things are themselves, um, you know, malevolent in some way. I think that they are pursuing their self-interests and that there are perverse and destructive incentives that are have made their self-interests um, very damaging to the country. So what is counter disinformation to answer your question? Your question is, given everything that we found out in the course of the pandemic, everything that they were wrong about, you know, from the stigmatizing of any inquiry into the origins of the pandemic and the declaration that anybody investigating the possibility of lab leak was a racist conspiracy theorist to even more pedestrian examples like for instance if you recall in the earliest months of the pandemic conspiracy theorists or not conspiracy theorists necessarily but dangerous peddlers of misinformation were the people who were saying you should wear masks right because at that time the health consensus for its own quite cynical reasons, was still that you should not wear masks. And Fauci later admitted that this was just public messaging and uh, that they were trying to hoard masks. Essentially, they needed to hoard N95s, but so they lied to the public. So, right. so that's how the sort of counter disinformation framework operates. So then the question is, to what end? What is it actually trying to accomplish? The name disinformation, counter disinformation, suggests deliberately a kind of dispassionate inquiry into the truth about matters. So disinformation is bad because it's a manipulation of the facts. It's a manipulation of reality. A war against disinformation is good because it's clearing away this dangerous detritus that's keeping us from seeing the facts and the reality and, and getting to the science. But that's not what it exists to do at all. You know, its its name is meant to evoke that deliberately to distract from what it actually exists to do. And what it actually exists to do is to fortify the power of particular party interests and serve as a weapon against anybody perceived as a threat to those right. party interests. That's in a clinical sense, not making moral judgments, like mechanically, that's what it exists to do. And so you don't end up with a reckoning because it's not built to occasion a reckoning. It's built specifically to inhibit a reckoning by making it so that when the truth is revealed, you can simply move on to the next disinformation panic and ignore the last one. And people who try too much or insist too much on an accounting can be accused of peddling misinformation or or disinformation in some other way. It's an apparatus of uh, information regulation and social control. And it's been quite effective at that. It has been. And uh, I, 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 this leads me to um, chapter seven that you write about, uh, which is about January 6th. And it's, uh, I just wrote a book came out a couple months ago. It's it's still the thing I, I regret the most not putting more effort into was January 6th, because I think it explains a lot. Um, I, I was talking with someone the other day about how January 6th night, I always remember Anderson Cooper went on the air at CNN and was just grossed out by the people. Yeah, look at these people. They're they're making a mess of the Capitol and they're going to go home to the Olive Garden and their Holiday Inn Hotel. And uh, and it was kind of smug and, and sort of made fun of him for that. But it instantly became that that he didn't get the talking points yet that oh no no this is going to be <clears throat> used this very bad riot that gave you a chance to sort of you know laugh at and and just be be 
you know, annoyed by these. It's these worse than Pearl wars. Harbor. Right. Oh, no. Worse than Pearl Harbor is another 9-11. And, and then it gets used in this, in, to this day. I mean, as you write about, within a month, um, the Department of Homeland Security announcing this new effort to prevent domestic terrorism. And, and that included uh, countering the spread of disinformation online and then using that to this day and, and beyond in ways that maybe we don't even understand. Um, you have this phrase in that chapter about catastrophizing speech, which I just think is such a such a telling one and such a true statement there. So what is it about that event that you think uh, has been able to be used successfully by by places like the corporate media, by our government, by tech platforms to continue this disinformation effort? Before I answer that, did he actually say uh, Holiday Inn and Olive Garden? Did he, did. he actually? Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I, I was actually, so I was on Tucker Carlson yeah. the next night and we were like laughing about it. You know, it was like, oh, you know, yeah. like, what, I love the Olive Garden. No, how, how right. dare you talk about it? But that that was his tone. It was just right. like, you look at these annoying, gross people. Right, right. Um, wow. <laughs> so uh, I think that the reason why it was so useful was that it was a, desecration. And so yeah. in symbolic terms, it really was very powerful, right? We can point out all the ways in which it's been exaggerated and the absurdity of calling it a coup. And, um, you know, I, I think it, it is absurd to call it a coup. And I think it's the suggestion that this was some high level coordinated effort with the gen QAnon generals meeting with proud boy commandants and planning this is preposterous. On the other hand, there were people rioting inside the U.S. Capitol. There were attacks on security officers, the U.S. Capitol, and um, and it was a sort of deliberate desecration. You know, uh, not that every single person involved intended to desecrate a symbol of, of American governance, but certainly some of the people did. And so that played very powerfully. And you had these images and this video that could be replayed endlessly. And it was a sort of wild bedlam that was occurring. And so in symbolic terms, it was um, quite potent and it's not surprising that it could be used in that way. And then of course, the most absurd exaggeration will go unpunished. So once you have the symbolic desecration, even if it's on behalf of a totally ineffectual, not at all threatening to the seat of US power, you know, it was a riot. Um, and it was a, a riot that never, you know, threatened maybe the, the Capitol Police who were right there and obviously threatened a number of the protesters who were the people who were actually killed that day um, or died that day. But but it, it didn't threaten the U.S. government. But there's no within the, the sort of mainstream press, there's no um, there is no inhibitor. There is no regulatory uh, no regulator, like on a car, I mean, to prevent people from going overboard. So it became not only possible, but de rigor to refer to it in the most alarmist and hysterical terms. And it also, again, fit right into a pre established framework. And so that was important. And I, I do think, and that pre established framework was, as you pointed out, domestic extremism, yeah. violent terrorism, which the greater the threat of domestic extremism and, and violent terrorism, the more justification there is for a vast machinery of surveillance and behavioral control and, uh, you know, 
domestic counter-extremism, domestic counter-programming of extremism. So there's a lot of money tied up in this. There are a lot of bureaucratic budget lines tied up in this, and it all it all tends to enhance the power of the federal government and the federal agencies. And so you can't understate the extent to which, again, there's a sort of a through line of self-interest and of powerful claiming more powerful for themselves. But the other thing that I would say that uh, maybe now we are tipping into cynical territory, but there is a... um, there is a mutually reinforcing pattern that occurs here where there is an event such as January 6th, where there is a display of uh, violence or some kind of threat is mustered. And that leads to the, the sort of overreaction on the side of the what you might call populist insurgency leads to an expansion of the surveillance and policing powers of the state. And so it's not out of the realm of of what's plausible to say that the state has an interest in seeing that happen yeah. and that the state the state might um, at the very least seek to exaggerate what has occurred if not outright abet it in certain ways um, because it believes it has more to gain um, by allowing it to happen than by preventing it yeah i mean if in that way maybe it is kind of like 9/11 <laughs> into the people that, that try to compare it Coming up, a fascinating look at a little-known aspect of the disinformation efforts, at least to me, plus Siegel's connection to Tucker Carlson's firing. That's next. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about a recent rabbit hole long-form column that I wrote in Fourth Watch on how AI, artificial intelligence, will replace the bad journalists. Journalists, you see, can go to the scene of news and capture it in real time for their audience. Artificial intelligence can't. Journalists can uncover some massive story thanks to hard work, research, and developing sources. AI can't. They can bring something entirely unique to the marketplace by thinking about a topic in a way no one else has. AI can't, at least so far. But bad journalists, mediocre journalists, they accept dictation from sources rather than cultivate their own path. They aggregate rather than lead. They sit at home, scan the internet, rather than go outside and report. These skills are cheaper, quicker, and better when done by artificial intelligence. These journalists should be nervous about their future job prospects. I was playing around with ChatGPT, the the free artificial intelligence tool recently, and at one point I told ChatGPT to write a news article that includes exclusive information about Donald Trump's administration. I'm sorry, it spit back. As an AI language model, I don't have access to exclusive information or news. It's important to adhere to ethical and legal standards of journalism and not publish unverified or confidential information. A little self-awareness from the artificial intelligence and a bit of a journalistic lesson for the media members it may be replacing in the years to come. More with Jacob coming up, but I want to tell you that the full Fourth Watch podcast is available exclusively to paid subscribers on Substack. Yes, Fourth Watch is on Substack this year, and paid subscribers get a whole bunch of extra content from those original deep dive columns like Rabbit Hole, which I just read from, to the full podcasts each episode. Check it out for just 5 bucks a month or $50 for a year at fourthwatch.media. Now, back to Jacob Siegel. 
one. I, I want to go to chapter three because it's probably the chapter I, I knew least about when it came to uh, to this disinformation story. Um, it was fascinating to me. Graphica, is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which was uh, a, a a company, essentially, like a, a contractor that was uh, built to, um, uh, I guess, so Department of Defense funded censorship consortium that you write about, created to fight terrorists, but then repurposed to censor Americans and and speech. So how did you come on to the story? And it's a fascinating one that I don't I don't know nearly enough about, but I'm very interested in. So that what you just described is a sort of uh, a useful window through which to view the entire counter disinformation machinery, the actual, not the conceptual architecture of it, but the machinery that actually executes the censorship functions right. is, lar is largely built out of counterterrorism parts that were designed to, you know, deter ISIS messaging, counter ISIS messaging, detect ISIS messaging online. And was then repurposed um, against Americans, which, you know, the, the, would seem to pose certain constitutional and legal problems that there are these Defense Department weapons of war, essentially, that have now been turned around against American citizens. Um, so Graphic in particular was, uh, you know, built out of this DOD contract, was part of this larger, there's a critical turn that occurs, a critical change in the um in the sort of messaging and the the approach to counterterrorism practice by the United States, and it happens really kicks into gear during the um, end of the first Obama administration, and then continues through the second Obama administration. And it's led by the Obama White House, and it's this turn away from counterterrorism in this sort of conventional sense, which is about targeting terrorist groups, killing terrorist groups, disrupting terrorist groups, really focused on military kinetic applications of power. A turn away from that towards what's called countering violent extremism. CVE. And when this change occurs, when you go from CT, counterterrorism, to CVE, countering violent extremism, you broaden up this whole framework this and this enormous budget inside the government, not just from the Pentagon, but money coming into this through the State Department, through Department of Homeland Security. There's this enormous, enormous budget that's going into this, and it opens up this this budgeting to a larger group of people, social science graduates, but you know, also tech people, sort of humanities people, people who would previously have gone into, would not have gone into lines of work uh, associated with military initiatives or Department of Defense initiatives who were not necessarily inclined towards that or temperamentally associated with that. All of a sudden they get brought into CVE because CVE is now about sort of re-education and messaging and it's about appealing through narratives and, and that change, which is quite fundamental, has this critical tech component also. And the tech component is focused on... Um, in particular, by 2014, you know, there's this big ISIS social media campaign and the Islamic State is doing a lot of propaganda on Twitter and its propaganda is both highlighting its brutality and also, you know, 
doing some rather effective appeals to try and recruit young Muslims from Europe and elsewhere. And that's all going on. Al-Qaeda had been doing some similar things on YouTube. Um, and, and you know, the, uh, there was some recruitment going on sort of through imams on YouTube. And so there's this CVE bureaucracy that gets built up that has both a sort of more progressive bent to it in not in explicit ideological terms necessarily, though it sometimes comes out, but in its premises, it's more sort of aligned with the progressive view of political power. And and then that merges with what's going on with these tech campaigns aimed at countering um, these groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda on social media. And out of all of that, you get a new breed of companies like Graphica, for instance, um, that are built specifically as tools of CT, CVE online. That's how Graphica starts. But then Graphica gets repurposed as a sort of broad counter disinformation company, and it's used for uh COVID and vaccine messaging. And it's, it does, you know, Graphica becomes one of the top sources that gets cited in all these stories. Anytime you see a story about, hey, there was a, for instance, the New York Times had a big story about six months ago about how Linda Sarsour, who was the former leader of the Women's March, was targeted by a Russian disinformation campaign. So it's absolute nonsense. The story right. is preposterous. I mean, it's a absurd story. And I say this as one of the co-authors of the piece in Tablet Magazine that took down the leadership of the Women's March. Like, I did the 10,000-word investigative story on the Women's March that led to Sarsour resigning. So I've looked into the Women's March extensively and into Sarsour extensively. And what you have in the New York Times is essentially a whitewash and a piece of PR saying, Sarsour is responsible for nothing. Forget about her continuous demonization of Israel. Forget about all these other statements that she's right. made that are, you know, alienating to all of these people that people don't especially like her cozying up to Farrakhan, a relationship to the nation of Islam. You know, don't worry about it. No, that's not what got her in trouble. What got her in trouble was that she was the target of Russian disinformation. And, you know, the, the Times presents this as as fact. When, of course, it's PR. It's not. Right. I mean, it, it's pure PR. And who is their source for it? Graphica. So Graphica, which was created through the Department of Defense funding as a, a tool in the war on terror, gets turned around and used to launder the reputation of Linda Sarsour. You know, it's kind of perfect in its own way. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, uh, fascinating. Uh, our right, last thing before we get to the lightning round here, I, I have to ask you, um, chapter 13, uh, was something I mean, everyone's got to read this whole piece, but, uh, let me just read it here to a ruling class that had already grown tired of democracy's demand that freedom be granted to its subjects. Disinformation provided a regulatory framework to replace the U S constitution. Um, and I have to say, you know, I've, I've read this and been taking notes on it over the last couple of weeks. Um, and so this was before Tucker Carlson's exit from Fox News this week. But I have to say it's it's Tucker-esque in a way that it's interesting. Everyone tries to figure out what the hell happened there. Top show is now gone. And someone who is perhaps the most critical of the kind of ruling class use of disinformation is now gone. So with that, also paired with the fact that Donald Trump, who we haven't talked much about, but certainly plays, I think, a, a big role in this rise of the counter disinformation effort is not going away. In fact, is only going to become more of a force over the next 18 months. 
Uh, where do you think this goes? What, what happens next? I should point out that I was supposed to be interviewed by Tucker Carlson on Tuesday. Really? So, okay. yeah, so I, it's my working theory is that they fired him to prevent him from interviewing me. There you go. Yeah, that's it. how Take scared that. they are of me. And they, that's how much they want to silence me. They shut down the most popular show on Fox. <laughs> um, so maybe it would have fit, some... but it would have fit right really well. It does fit really well with the, 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 the ethos of that show, I would say. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's why you wanted to talk to me, yeah. but, um, where it goes from here is towards an ever more expansive definition of disinformation and towards other forms of information regulation that gradually drop the pretext of national security emergency or of a global health pandemic and just get baked into the architecture of life online. Because what this is really about is controlling the new public arena. It's about controlling the internet and disinformation. This grave threat of disinformation was ginned up, was contrived in order to serve as a pretext to allow for a, uh, a capture of the internet, a capture of the public spaces online. And it, it served that purpose. And that's what happened to Twitter. For instance, that's what the Twitter files reveal, right? right? You had, you had what was nominally a private company overseeing public discourse. So that's what we believed Twitter was. We believed that Twitter was a private corporation owned by this guy, Jack Dorsey, and that on Twitter, Americans were exchanging ideas and, and some people were stupid and some people were obnoxious and other people were like weird or funny or whatever, but they were, they were themselves and they were acting on behalf of themselves. And what we were seeing in those interactions was a representation of a kind of natural public discourse. But what we now know is that Twitter was a part corporate, part governmental entity that served particular interests that censored some narratives, amplified other narratives to serve particular ends. And, and there was some debate going on within the company. So it's not as if it played this role perfectly and without any inner tensions, but nevertheless, it played this role. Right. And so it, it was not simply a, a private company where people were f interacting freely. It was something quite different. It was a quasi governmental entity after 2017, certainly that served to, you know, to, to promote certain interests in certain parties and to um, inhibit or suppress others. More with Jacob, including the Fourth Watch lightning round on his respect for the work of people like Glenn Greenwald and Aaron Mate, available for paid subscribers of Fourth Watch on Substack. Go to fourthwatch.media to try it. Thanks so much to Jacob. Uh, really fascinating conversation. Super interesting journalist. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. Subscribe for free. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download, follow, like, rate, re review this podcast, the Fourth Watch podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spot, uh, Substack, <laughs> wherever you get your podcasts. Next episode, we're joined by Ben Smith of Semaphore. He's got a new book out. Really fascinating look at the media industry. A lot to talk about with him. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.